So if you will, grab your Bibles this morning. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we're going to slide to chapter 10 and begin in verse 19. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. As you're flipping there, um, Hebrews is a unique book in the New Testament and in the Bible in that we don't for sure know who the human author of Hebrews was. Now, we do know that Hebrews, like all 66 books of the Bible, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is inerrant, it is infallible, and so we trust it. But we don't actually know the person who wrote Hebrews, but we know some things about him. We know, first of all, that this author knew a whole lot about what it was like to be an Israelite in the Old Testament, and we know that this person really has a deep care, a pastoral concern for the fellow believers that he is writing to, and we know that this person wants to sort of merge those two realities and tell us, listen, Jesus is a big deal. Everything that we saw in the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. So all of the promises, all of the prophets, all of the storylines in the Old Testament are pointing us to Jesus. And so as he walks through the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, he's going to say, listen, Jesus is the one because Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest Aaron. And now in chapter 10 and verse 19, he's going to make a massive pivot in the book of Hebrews and say, therefore, Therefore, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done for us, therefore. And what's taking place here is theological explanation is now becoming practical application, as is the case with all of God's Word. And it's going to be practical application for the daily lives, not just of believers back then in the first century when this was written, but believers here and now today who are living in a storm-tossed world. What you're going to see is that the doctrines of Christ are going to lead us to the duty of Christ's followers. Or another way to put it, maybe you've heard the word orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means right belief. That when we rightly understand who Christ is through the Scriptures, that it leads to orthopraxy. Maybe a word you haven't heard as often. Orthopraxy is right action. So when we understand who Christ is, when we come to experience Him personally in our lives, it changes the way that we live. It informs, it teaches the way that we live. So we're going to go with this author of Hebrews this morning in chapter 10 and read verses 19 through 25 and see how do we apply the glorious reality of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Beginning in verse 19 then, hear the word of the Lord, therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And finally, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Let's take a moment, let's open in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the reality of who Jesus is, 
We thank you for the greatness and the power of your grace. We thank you for what Jesus has done in saving sinners like me, sinners like us on the cross. And so it is with joy that we look back to that reality and say, Lord Jesus, because of your love, how should we then live? How does it impact the way that we follow and know you? How does it impact the way that we care for and live life together with one another and constantly invite others into that same relationship with you and with one another? Father, we pray that you would illuminate our way this morning by your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Four applications this morning, really one great gift that we see here at the beginning very clearly that then leads to three very clear applications. But if you like numbers, we're going to go four points this morning. So number one, we have been given the gift of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Again, we have been given the gift of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Look again at the first several verses here in Hebrews 10, beginning in 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Here's the reality of what we're seeing. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for you to have access access to God. See, we need to understand that the reality, the biggest problem that they faced in all of the Old Testament is the same problem that they faced in the New Testament, is the same problem that you and I faced this morning as part of the New Testament church. Our sin has separated us from a holy and righteous God. We need access. Christianity begins with the really bad news. Our sin separates us eternally from God. And then it leads us to the good news that Jesus has given access. See, what the author is doing is he's hearkening back to the Old Testament and explaining that no one could enter the innermost part of the temple. And you may recall that that part of the temple in the very inside was called the Holy of Holies, where we're told God's special presence resided, except once a year, Leviticus 16 walks us through this moment, once a year there was a day called the Day of of atonement, the day of payment, the day of bringing us back into relationship with God. And what they would do, this ritual was that the high priest could enter through a very literal curtain, and he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb over the ark in the Holy of Holies. But he would do it with great fear and great trepidation, knowing that he was before a holy God and he himself was a sinner. In fact, oftentimes that high priest would actually have a rope tied to his ankle running back outside of the Holy of Holies so that if he were to die in the presence of God, that they could drag his body back out. This is the seriousness of the issue. But the Bible is saying here, when Jesus' flesh was torn on a bloody cross, remember in the New Testament, at that exact same moment, what took place? The very same curtain. In the Holy of Holies, we're told, was torn from top to bottom, and access to God the Father was restored. From that moment forward, including now for all time, anyone, anyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation has access when we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Not just access, but we have personal, permanent, confident, welcomed relationship with 
God the Father through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And he gives us not only access, he gives us here in this first couple of verses, advocacy. Jesus is not only our access, he is our advocate before God the Father. See, again, the priest was the one who would advocate for the people. He pleaded for mercy on behalf of the people. He would go through these exercises in order to ask for mercy for the people. 1 John chapter 2 completes our understanding here. He says this in verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus is our advocate. He is our defense attorney before God the Father. He pleads our case before God. But understand, Jesus did not simply do that. It is Jesus who jumped over that defense table, sent by the Father, and says, I will be the defense. Here is our defense. I will take the punishment that this man, this woman, this child deserves. Punish me instead. The priest, the high priest in the Old Testament had one terrifically huge problem. He, too, was a sinner. And so he would offer sacrifices not only on behalf of the people, but he would have to do it for himself, reminding us that that was never going to be enough. But Jesus comes to earth having lived the perfect life. And so not only do we get him standing in our place, taking our punishment, but we get his perfect life and his perfect record so that in Christ, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your guilt and your shame. So many of us stumble over this reality. When God looks at you now, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's a free gift. All we have to do is ask for that access and for that advocacy. That's why Romans 1 says, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the grace of God. It's the power of God. And so having told us this, therefore, with this reality in mind, he gives us now three applications that we'll take the remainder of our time here to consider. He says, here's three things that I want you to live out together in light of this reality. So our first application, but if you're keeping numbers, number two. Point number two, let us then, let us together draw near to God and live a life of worship. Let us together Together is an important word here. Draw near to God and live a life of worship. Look again at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Bible says that we can with confidence draw near to God because, again, we have been forgiven, we have been made righteous, and we are beloved in His sight. Many of you have experienced salvation, but you stop short of knowing that you are beloved in Christ. We've been given a new heart to know and to follow God. We've been washed clean of our sin and our shame, washed clean. As we kick off this new school year this week, I was remembering with great joy and a significant amount of shame the first week of my sixth grade year of school. I remember somewhere during that week we had P.E. and we came back into the classroom from P.E. and the teacher, in love, said, you all stink. Get away from me. 
This is the day, students, that you will go home with mom or dad and you will purchase at the store deodorant and you will apply said deodorant. And in that moment, the reality of my stench, if you will, connecting to my shame and the reality of my embarrassment, because I knew I was one of the offenders, connected to my shame made a reality. And what the scripture is saying here is that we can be sure, sure, get it? Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. We can be sure that in Christ we have been washed clean of our sin and shame. Yes, there is a stick of deodorant. It is called sure. If you're confused, that was the joke. You're welcome. (sighs) Tough crowd this morning. Not only, though, can we draw near. The Bible's saying that we can draw near specifically in worship. Romans 12.1 has something significant to say to us about this. Listen to Romans 12.1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Seven days a week, a complete life response of worship to the grace of God, to our Savior. You see, to know God is to love God and to worship Him in thankfulness and to express that thankfulness in worship. He also specifically means not just a lifestyle, but He means literally, specifically gathering together as the family or the body of Christ in corporate worship, doing what we are doing at this exact moment, Sunday morning, worshiping together, being together around Christ. He means things like city groups where we gather together and the the focus of the room is not any one person. It's not us. The, the, The focus of the room is Jesus. And that we gather again to worship and be reminded about the goodness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this gathering together as the church corporately is exactly what the author has in mind because we see in verse 24 and 25, he says specifically, don't skip gathering together as the church. Let me remind us, the church is not a building, right? You are the church. We are the church. We together are the church. And worship is not an event. It is not a show. It is an action. It is a relationship. It is gathering together with Jesus and giving Him all of our praise. Sometimes that is singing. Sometimes that is a moment of prayer together, thanking God for what He's done. Sometimes that's an individual quiet moment, just you in your prayer closet talking to God and saying, thank you for what you have done for me. But all of it is worship. Worship is our highest duty as human beings, and it is at the same time our greatest delight. You will find that much in your walk with Christ is experiencing both delight and duty. There are days that I just don't want to open my Bible, and and there's a, a reminder. I have to go, you know what, I know that I need this, so I'm going to press into this. And there are other days when I I desire, I'm hungry to open God's Word and be reminded of who God is and to commune with Him personally. But it is our highest call. We are invited into something. This is who we are meant to be. The Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Ultimately, at the end of the day, what are we supposed to do? What does it say? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's duty and there's delight all in that together, but it is our highest privilege. And we can only imagine how much greater it will be one day when we get to see 
Jesus Christ face to face in heaven and experience all of his goodness, all of his glory, and no more sin. We look forward to that. Number three, in the meantime, let us together live a life of hope in the truth. Let us together live a life of hope in the truth. The Bible says this in 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, the substance behind our imperative is the reality of God's grace. He is faithful, therefore hold on tight to the confession and the hope that you have. And this begs an incredibly important question of every single member of the human race. What are you putting your ultimate hope into? And is it worth it? Is it going to work out? Is it going to play out for you? There's a doctor at NYU by the name of Dr. Marston who did a survey asking 3,000 people, what are you living for? What are you living for? 94% of the respondents answered in this form or fashion, summarized this way. They said things like, waiting for the future, waiting for something to happen, waiting for hoping in next year, a better time, tomorrow. We're hoping things change. But the reality is, is there's, there's no substance. It's an empty hope. The Bible says to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Man, that's hard to do. Again, you see sort of a subtext of this language of stormy seas. And here the Bible is saying without wavering. That means that you are going to be in a ship and there are going to be waves and there are going to be storms and it is going to be difficult this side of heaven to follow Christ and hold fast to the truth. Why? Because we live in a broken world. We live in a world where the common speech of the day is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely, but that's not what the scripture says. We live in a world where people are desperate to know what is the truth. How many conversations just this week, this month, do you have over that question in one form or another? Well, what is the truth? I just want to know what, what's real. In a world where believers suffer persecution and death daily around the world, even in this very moment as we gather safely, when they refuse to deny the hope that they have, the confession of their faith, that is why we're told to hold on without wavering. And it begs a question, believer, what is your anchor? What are you holding on to that you believe is going to carry you through the stormy seas? And believer, our anchor is the incarnation, the arrival, the perfect life of, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the one day second coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is our hope that we hold on to without wavering. I talked on the phone this week with Greg Goodall, whose mom passed away and went home to be with Jesus earlier this week. And we're praying on the phone, and I prayed, um, I prayed something to the effect of, Lord Jesus, help us to have that good kind of jealousy towards her, knowing that she is seeing you face to face in a way that we can only imagine. And after we prayed, he said, you know, it's funny that you prayed exactly that way. Lisa, my wife, was um, at an appointment this week, and she was interacting with somebody. And for whatever reason, the Lord put it on her heart to ask this other person, hey, do you approach life from a standpoint of, of faith? 
And the person looked back at Lisa and said, no, I, I don't. Do you? Asked Lisa, do, do you? And she said, I absolutely. With joy, she was able to share, I absolutely approach every aspect of life through faith because I have hope in Jesus. And you know what the person's response was, interestingly enough? They said, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of what you have. Believers, let's remember this is a part of our opportunity to constantly share. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to share the hope that you have. So what is our hope? Again, I want to offer to you a confession this morning, something to think about. What is our hope? When the Bible says, let us hold fast to our confession, and what I want to show to you this morning is called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, we don't know exactly when it was written, but it is roughly 2,000 years old. It goes back to the very beginning. It is not the Scripture. We, we have the Bible and we have everything else. I am in no way saying that this is equivalent to Scripture or authoritative over Scripture, but what the Apostles' Creed is, some of you, this is very familiar, you've known this your whole life. Others of you, you're like, what are you talking about? But what it is, is a confession of our hope. It is a summary statement of, if I had to essentially boil down all the goodness of Scripture and tell you, this is my hope, this is what I believe, this is what I hold firmly to, this is a pretty good summary. Listen and be encouraged. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead, but that's not it. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What a powerful summary, a confession of our faith. Now, there's a little asterisk up there because one of the things that gets most often understood when you hear that is you go, Catholic? I didn't think we were Catholic. It's not what it means, just to be clear. It is a lowercase c because the word Catholic, by the way, is an adjective. It means universal. It means everybody. What we are confessing here is not our allegiance to the Pope. This has absolutely nothing to do with the organized entity that is the Catholic Church. What we are saying is that the Church of Jesus Christ is one. That every single believer worldwide from all time that names Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that we are one in Christ. And that the one cornerstone, the sure foundation of the church is Jesus and only Him. It is one universal church. And so we confess the hope that we have. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Fourth and finally, let us together live a life of loving community. Let us together live a life of loving community. This is sort of the home run of the passage here. This is verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, let us consider. Consider how. Let's take a moment and let's consider. I would ask you this morning, believers, if you're, if you're here for the first time, we are thrilled that you are here. 
you're welcome. We want you to connect here. We want you to feel like you're a part of the church family. If you have been here for a long time and you're a part of the church family, I would challenge you with this question this morning. Are you here to give or just to take? Consider, are you here to serve or be served? Which immediately makes us think of Mark chapter 3 and Jesus, the Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve. It is out of His great love that we serve one another. But are you a part of this church to live love and good works, which is our call and our command here in this passage, to do things that might bless others? Because understand this, church, we live in a society, in a world, in a greater community that we are told that we ought to live a life of consumerism. What can I get? How can I do the least effort and get the most in return? That is what the world tells us, and yet Jesus Christ flips that on its head. Notice, too, you can't do love and good works alone. It doesn't work, right? Have you ever tried the whole one-hand clap, one clapping trick? It doesn't work, right? The very nature of biblical community is that it takes us being together. So no Christian can, at the end of the day, be an individualist. We are the body of Christ. Consider, too, the importance of community, particularly as it relates to loneliness, being alone. Phil Mobley wrote an article this week for By Faith, which is the PCA's magazine, and the title of the article was this, COVID-19 exposed a pre-existing pandemic of isolation. He says, a U.S. survey in 2018 by Cigna and Ipsos found that most American adults are considered lonely on the UCLA loneliness scale, with single parents, those living alone, and those in Generation Z, ages 18 to 22, having the highest loneliness scores. That should alarm us. Harvard Business Review has charted the physical and mental harm associated with loneliness and has shown a negative impact on health that they say, listen, that they say loneliness here is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day as they look at the health data. That's what Harvard Business Review says. 2018 Pew Research says one in every 10 adults in the U.S. regularly feels lonely or isolated from those around them all or most of the time. For the single and the divorced, it was one in six. As Davidson mentioned to us earlier this morning, consider that we exist and we must exist in biblical community because God exists in community. God is a person in community. The three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from before the foundations of the world, God has existed in community. Does that blow your mind a little bit that He can be three persons in one being? Yes. <laughs> you want me to explain it? I can't. It is what the Scripture tells us, and it should make us go, wow, God, you are incredible. And it should make us go, if you exist in community, then probably I should too. In the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God creates Adam and says immediately, it is not good that the man should be alone. God made us in his image. He made us as persons to be in community, and he immediately solves that issue by creating Eve, and then immediately continues by saying, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 12, 
Some people come to Jesus in a, in a crazy moment. They're like, hey, Jesus, your, your mom and your brother and your sister, they want to talk to you real quick. And he's surrounded by believers who are learning. He's surrounded by chaos. His people, some people are interested. Some people are attacking him. And his response is incredibly informative when he says to them, not in a crass way, but in a humble way, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We've got to understand that in our church, in our weekly city groups, God has called us to family. And we've got to further understand that the way that we view our church, the way that we view our city groups, the way that we view everything about who we are is that there's absolutely always room for a couple more. And we're excited about that reality. And we're active and eager in inviting people to take those spots. Right? We want to fill any empty space we have with more people as they join into the family of God and experience His love and grace and that we might be the outlets of that same love and grace with eagerness, not with reluctance. And so he says, stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up. You know, the root word there in Greek, stir up, it's actually the same word that we get spur, like spur the horse. It's a provoking, it's an irritating almost, it's an inciting thing. Horses don't love spurs. It is actually good for them to be led, though, by the rider. I'm not advocating you kick a horse with spurs. I'm just saying what the Bible uses here is the same intense language of stir up one another, spur on one another. Well, how do we do that? Here are the five spurs of city groups at New City Church. And we find these explicitly in Acts chapter 2. You heard them once, I'll say them again. Bible studying together, fellowshipping together, sharing together. And by sharing, I mean everything. Sharing how you are uh, emotionally and spiritually and encouraging one another, as well as physically. Do you have needs? How can we care for you? That's what we mean by sharing. Praying and reaching And by reaching, we mean sharing the good news of the gospel, evangelizing, hospitality, that reality that there's always room for one more, two more, three more. What's our motivation? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must love his brother. He goes on to say, not neglecting to meet. Not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some. This is not a new challenge. It's not a new problem. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, just a couple verses that kind of give us a picture of what Paul is driving us to here. And I pray, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, you plural, by the way, I pray that, that you all being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, the idea here is when you don't gather together in biblical community, you inevitably miss out on something. And we are saying we don't want you to miss out. Uh, R. Kent Hughes wrote a commentary on Hebrews. He says it a little bit more strongly, but it's an interesting take. He says this, it is true that a person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He does not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, uh, if he does not, he will have a very poor relationship. Insightful for both church family 
and married family. God has called us to worship, grow, serve, and reach together as a family. So we don't neglect meeting together with the body of Christ. How do we do that? Well, next it says encourage one another. Encourage one another. Caring, bearing one another's burdens, praying for, providing for needs, meeting a physical need, an emotional, a spiritual need, encouraging somebody, lifting one another up. You can judge me if you want, but I was watching the movie Failure to Launch uh, last week. This is a, a movie with Matthew McConaughey and some girl, whatever. Um, and so there's a, there's a scene where there's three guys hanging out together, and they are doing some rock climbing. And Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey's character is climbing up the wall, and his buddy is doing the belaying. And that's the person who's very important, who's on the bottom. And he's got the rope that is holding Matthew McConaughey from falling down and hurting himself or killing himself. And inevitably, as happens in our life, the cell phone rings or there's a chime of a text and the friend gets distracted. He looks over at the text. Oh, how applicable this is to us today that we get distracted by technology and he forgets to hold on to the rope. At that exact moment, Matthew McConaughey makes a flying leap to the next part of the rock and falls down and lands on top of his friend, injuring both of them because he wasn't holding on to the rope. As believers in Christ, we absolutely must be holding one another up because the reality is the life that we live in is very much like climbing the side of a mountain face. And so as we walk through this life and we have marriage struggles or, or, or our kids are struggling and going through difficult times or we have financial troubles or we have doubts, worries in, in our faith, we don't understand something that the scripture might say and we don't know how to apply it or we're feeling lonely, or we're struggling with depression or anxiety over something. These are all realities that everybody faces. The scripture is saying, do it together. Lift one another up. Be the person on the end of that rope. And when we do that, we don't say, hey, I'm here to fix your problems. It's not our role. I don't have that ability. I err every time I try to be Jesus. So I come to that brother, that sister in Christ, I say, I can't fix it. But I know the one who can. I'm not Jesus, but I know him personally. So whether you're talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet and you get to introduce them, or you're talking to a fellow believer, either way you go back to Jesus together and you go, here is the Savior. Let's look together to him. And the Bible ends with this. Do it all the more as you see the day draw near. Do these things all the more as you see the day draw near. Uh, This Sunday's scripture passage and next Sunday's scripture passage, they both explicitly reference the end times. There's going to be an end to all this. Jesus is going to return. So what should we do if it is the end times? Should we freak out? No. Should we live under a rock? Should we speculate as to who or what the Antichrist is? No. Should we make the government or news media or anyone else overrule the Word of God? No. Should we reread the Left Behind series? No. The apostles understand explicitly in Scripture, the disciples who became the apostles, these 12 guys, they thought that they were living in the fourth quarter of the game. They talk that way in Scripture. It has been 2,000 years. Jesus has tarried thus far. 
He is coming. We don't know when. Jesus says this. He says, only the Father knows the day, the hour of my return. In other words, somebody who is in control has got it, so stop worrying about it. The reality is, is the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, we began the end times. I don't know when the end is. I know who is in control of it, and that is all that matters. So what should I then do? In light of the promises of God and His grace, He gives us three applications, doesn't He? Let's continue to live a life of drawing near to God and worship. Let's together be faithful to believe and share the good news and cling to the confession of the hope that we have that Jesus is who He says He is. And let's gather together as the body of Christ, not giving up on it, but rather supporting, growing together in our faith, praying for one another, sharing and encouraging one another until the day that He takes us home. Amen.